comes into your mind uh, when I tell you a certain word? All right, I'm going to say a word. Uh, this is the kind of thing uh, Sean Slevin would do with you if you were laying on his couch as a psychotherapist. Uh, no picture of ink blots. We're going to do word association. What comes into your mind when I say the word? Don't actually answer it out loud. Just <laughs> When I say the word heaven, what, what do you normally, what kind of mental image do you carry when it comes to heaven? It's funny, um, this idea of heaven. Heaven is a very religious word. It's a word that is, doesn't really fit easily in our modern secular society, but it still hangs on. It's obstinate. I mean, it's, it's all over the place, whether it's Eric Clapton singing about his son or Bob Dylan singing about knocking on heaven's door or at the end of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows after the final battle with Voldemort, for those of you real literary people, when... <laughs> Seriously, that was a judgment on you who haven't read it yet um, with Jillian and Spencer and I. Um, when Harry's in the white room with Dumbledore and lots of people are saying this is some sort of rehabilitation of a concept of heaven. I, I think that oftentimes in America today that when people use the word heaven, they tend to be doing one of two things with it. Oftentimes, they're talking about some vague afterlife, something after death. Generally speaking, people here in the West, if they do hold to life after death, it's this idea of endless happiness and joy and contentment. So when somebody dies, you might hear somebody saying to them, well, he's in a better place or she's in a better place. Even if they're not like uh, seriously religious, People still say this kind of thing. There's this vague notion of, unless you're a terrible person, it's going to be okay after you die. Another way, though, we tend to use this word is it seems like we use it to, when we're reaching to describe real happiness and real bliss. For example, after a really good chocolate cake, we might say, that was heavenly, right? Or um, often in music and in poetry, when it comes to falling in love, uh, we might somehow say that it was heavenly or that was heaven. Now, obviously, these are just figures of speech. They're kind of carryovers from a very religious past, a different era. But what they all have in common is this vague cultural memory of something other than what we can see and feel and taste and touch. So for many of us, the word heaven today is either about something after death or uh, about some blissful experience. Now, here's the deal. We're a Christian church. We're a church that, that worships Jesus Christ. And so our challenge is to relearn the Christian view of heaven. It's to relearn the biblical view of heaven. And thankfully, we've got an enormous resource called the book of Revelation. This book that we're going through now in a series, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is about heaven. 
And when we come to these chapters, chapters 4 and 5, that Molly read for us this morning, when we come to these chapters, notice the very first verse. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, if you brought along a copy of the Bible. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, what did he mean by that? Had he been listening to Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, reading J.K. Rowling? What does he mean when he says a door open in heaven? Now, we've got to stop for a moment and just recognize something that's so blatantly obvious. We tend to forget it unless you come to this church. And then I hope you can't forget it because I, I feel like a broken record on this. This is the last pages of a story. The Bible is a book of books, but the key is it's a book of books. The key is that there's unity to this book, that there's a universe of symbolic meaning in this book, and that this, this kind of um, these images that we find at the end of this book called the Bible, they, they've been being defined all the way along through the plot line. In fact, do you know that heaven comes up in the first sentence of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then in the last two chapters of the Bible, it's all about heaven and earth being recreated. So that's called in literature an inclusio. When there's something at the beginning of a book or a story or a poem, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it shows up again at the end, that's a literary technique called an inclusio. And that is the author's way of saying... Like, this is the way to listen to what's... This is key to the whole thing. So the Bible starts by talking about heaven and earth. And it ends by talking about heaven and earth. So clearly, this is a big deal to the Bible. In fact, it is the key to the Bible. But that's a problem for us. Because we've developed views of heaven over the last few centuries here in Western society, and we don't even realize that we're bootlegging in these Western assumptions when we read the Bible. So a lot of us, we read this, I saw a door open in heaven, and we tend to think that stuff I said earlier about heaven. So you kind of see like some giant telescope looking way out into space. And if you get it zoned in and focused just right, oh, there's a door. And I can see now through that door where heaven is. But that's not what's going on here. Our challenge is to let the Bible explain for itself what it means by the word heaven. Now, I've talked a lot about this over the years. In fact, for those of you who are in essentials right now, we just talked about that this this week. But we've got to get it clear in our mind. The people who wrote the Bible, when they talked about heaven and earth, they were not talking about geography. They were not talking about locations. They were not talking about two different places in the universe, earth here and heaven way out there. And if God opens the door and you get the telescope right in, you can see through it. According to the cultures that produce the Bible, heaven and earth are dimensions of the same place. Now, that's key. And if you don't, like, jam that into your imagination, if you don't insist on that, and if you don't keep reminding yourself that you've been really messed up when it comes to this view, then, you're gonna, then the whole book of Revelation gets kind of skewed off in another direction. 
In the Bible, heaven and earth are dimensions of the same reality, not locations in the universe. And here's what's important. When I say they are dimensions in the same reality, what that means is they are wrapped up in each other. They are bound together. They're not separate places. They are the same dimensions. They are different dimensions of the same place. They're overlapping. They're interlocking. So this door opening up isn't way out there in the sky. Think instead, if, he, if this was being written today, I think it would have used a different idiom. It would have said something more like a veil separated or a veil split. So think instead like a curtain pulled back and you saw something that was there all along, right next to you, you didn't even notice it. Imagine like you, you think I'm standing in front of a wall, but then suddenly through some tricky painting or something, it kind of moves. It was actually a curtain, and there's stuff right there next to me all along. I just couldn't see it before. That's what's going on in chapter 4, verse 1. This is, this is about the veil parting. Now, that's where we need to start. That's where we need to begin if we want to get these two chapters right. But there's more. Look at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Revelation. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, he didn't think heaven was a place. He thought it was dimension right here. A door. All of a sudden, I could see into this dimension that I can't normally see into. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. Notice, the key to him seeing in the heaven was being in the spirit. Not a ticket from the night bus, you know, that he could travel off to some other place. I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, our challenge is to reimagine heaven according to the way the Bible thinks of heaven. And the first key issue is to know that when the Bible thinks of heaven, it's talking about a dimension to this reality that's right here. You're moving around in it. You just can't see it. But notice what else. What's in heaven? God's throne. This comes up again and again and again on page after page of the Bible. Heaven, it's a dimension here, and it is the dimension where God dwells. Now, this is hard for us because over the last several centuries, the view of heaven that's formed our imagination in Western civilization is primarily thinking not of heaven as the, the dimension in which God dwells, but we tend to think of heaven as something of, that, uh, that we get to experience after death. Life after death in some sort of eternal, better place. And we've become so accustomed to this way of talking and thinking and imagining that it, it can be shocking when Christians discover that that's not the way the Bible does it. In the Bible, the main portrayal of heaven is not a final resting place for good people. Heaven in the Bible is God's current dwelling place. 
not your future resting place. Right? So the door is open and he doesn't see like Momo, Papa, or Auntie, right? What he sees is God. So in other words, and this is all over the Bible, the dominant teaching of the Bible is heaven is a dimension where God dwells. Now, notice verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, this again comes up all through the Bible when you find heaven portrayed. Those of you who've read the Bible, a famous part of the Bible is Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, that means in the Bible, he saw into heaven. Heaven is God's dwelling place. He was high and lifted up on his throne. So this is the thing. Over and, over. and then he heard these kind of angels praising God, singing, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. Now, think about this for just a minute. The majority of the references to heaven in Scripture have nothing to do with what will happen to us when we die. Instead, they are telling us this is God's dimension. This is where God is visible and where he is continually worshipped. Now, the reason I'm harping on this is because in our Western society, we've shifted the focus away from the Bible's focus. We've shifted the focus so that heaven isn't about God now. It's about you in the future. Now, that totally changes things. That's a very different conversation. You in the future or God being worshipped now? Now, just out of curiosity, which one feels a little bit ethnocentric, human-centered, like we're the center of this story? Do you, is, is heaven going to be about you in the future or is it going to be about God right now on the throne being worshipped? But what's happened in Western society is that we don't know it, but these ideas have been bootlegged in. We don't even realize it and they've shifted it so that when we think of heaven, we think of after death and we think of us being happy. In other words, two things have occurred that are deadly to the view of the world the Bible wants to give us. Number one, in this shift on heaven, number one, heaven has become privatized. It's about you. And number two, it's become postponed. It's about the future. So now the earth doesn't matter. Life now doesn't matter. There's all these kind of negative knock-on effects to the privatization and the postponement of the concept of heaven. In other words, we've made heaven more about the personal fate of human beings than about what God is up to right now. And one of the consequences of this is that heaven becomes only relevant to you when you're thinking about death. It's not relevant to right now in the fact that I'm getting my teeth kicked in, the fact that um, there's a lot of evil in this world, the fact that there's terrible abuses in this world, and how do we make sense of all of this? If heaven is only about what happens to me when I die then it's pushed off into the future. But in the Bible, heaven is not this vague future place concept. It's the presence of God now in this reality veiled from us. When we think of heaven as this place good people go to when we, when, when we die, we can now become thoroughly modern. That reality 
is what we see and feel and taste and touch. And that's what there is to life. But believing in heaven as a ever-present dimension that we can't see, but it is here. Believing in heaven the way the Bible presents it is a rebellion against a scientific worldview that what you see and feel and taste and touch is all there is. It's rebelling against that. Believing in the biblical heaven allows us to catch a glimpse not just of the world the way it is, but the world the way it really is. And the way it can be. A world shaped not solely by the things of earth and humanity, but by heaven and the love and compassion of God. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, this is weird. It's not only weird because it's hard for us moderns to really believe there's more to reality than kind of the scientific reality. That's very hard for us because we have these imaginations shrunken by the long winter of secularism and we've just bought it. We just, our big, I, my biggest burden for our church is that we'll actually believe in heaven. That we'll actually sustain a belief that there's not just a future, but there's a now that we can't always see and feel and taste and touch. And it's serious. All right. But, but there's something else going on here. It says that God dwells in heaven on a throne. He's in charge. That's hard to believe too. You know why that's hard to believe? Because if you were here last week, do you remember last week? This book is written in the early 60s AD. Not, not when Zelda was 40. But way... <laughs> oh, I'm joking. She wasn't even born yet. That was a joke. The early 60s AD. Now, here's the deal. Do, if you were here last week, last week we saw that Jesus is a lover writing love letters to his churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire. It's the early 60s. Do you know what happened on July the 18th in the year 64 AD? Does anybody know? The great Roman fire. Rome caught on fire and it burned for six days. And when the fire was over, the emperor of Rome, Nero, said the Christians did it. And, it. and he used the fire of Rome like Kristallnacht was used by the Germany, by Germany to, to start a war on, an, on a group of people. And so Rome starts going to war against the Christians and it lasts from 64 AD to 68. And during this time, like the um, Holocaust, Rome did a holocaust against Christians where they were burning them alive. They were killing them. It was terrible. And in those seven love letters, remember, Jesus is saying to the churches, it's about to break loose. All hell is about to break loose. There is about to be a fire that erupts on this earth. And that happens in just a couple of years. And what we saw in these letters to these churches is that here is Jesus. He loves the church. He's the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And in these letters, he's saying to them, you got to get ready. It's going to be hard. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to return to your first love because if you can't get your act together, you're not going to survive the cataclysmic events that are about to occur. 
That was what he said in chapter 2 and 3. And now in chapter 4, he says God is on the throne. Okay, do you feel that tension? Like, how can that be? How can it be that God is on the throne when a holocaust of God's people is occurring? That's the book of Revelation. That is the enigma. That is the tension. That is the plot that drives the book of Revelation. The plot driving Revelation is how does it make sense to say that God is on the throne when God's people are being slaughtered? How can those two things be simultaneously true? Notice. Notice chapter 5 verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So look, that sounds weird to us. It didn't sound weird to them. They knew that the kings of Israel were given a scroll. And this scroll was how the king learned justice. And when he put the Bible, when he put the Old Testament, when he put the scroll, when he put it into practice, he brought justice to the land. And when he brought justice to the land, he punished the wicked. He, he, um, he, he paid vengeance back to those who did evil and terrible things to others. And by doing this, the land flourished. So when John sees that God is on the throne, but the scroll is unopened, notice what happens. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. Why is he weeping so loudly? Because he's a Jew, because he's been raised on this whole long tradition that says the king has to have the scroll in order to bring justice and to deliver the land from injustice and from brokenness and from darkness and all the things. So when he sees that the king, there's a scroll next to him that cannot be opened, he starts weeping. Why is he weeping? Because the world is broken. And if the book is not opened, injustice will remain. There are cries of distress that will go unanswered. Hopes will continue to go unfulfilled. Injustices will be unavenged. John is lamenting for a creation that is stalled out. As long as there is no one to open the book, the world will not be healed. And John is carrying the lament of all the women who've been abandoned by their husbands. He's carrying the lament of all the women who've seen children die. He's carrying the lament of all the men who have had to watch terrible things happen to them and to others. Of all the children who have been deeply mistreated. When he cries out and weeps, he is bringing all of that weeping right into the throne of heaven. And saying, this can't be. This is terrible. This is a cataclysmic, cosmic tragedy. We've got a problem here. And notice what happens. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, again, there's a lot of imagery going on here. Look, this morning, it's like I'm standing in front of a huge grain elevator and I've got a little teaspoon, right? I can get this and I can give this, right? That's all we've got, all this imagery. But what's going on in and behind all of this is that God has a plan. The scroll can be opened. Injustice 
can be dealt with. Darkness can be overcome by light. And what is the secret? Who can open the scroll? Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders I saw a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into all the earth. A lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. Now. Again, the people reading this originally, that was no big deal. Like, that's like me saying to you, there's a dude in a spider, a spider suit that can shoot spider webs out of his hand. You would know immediately I'm talking about Wonder Woman, right? I mean, <laughs> about Spider-Man. You could immediately, if I showed you some mass dude in a spider suit shooting webs, you wouldn't be weird. I mean, it would be weird, but you would know exactly what I'm saying. This is Spider-Man. They knew exactly what this meant. A lamb looking as if he had been slain. This was a sacrifice. What it's saying is that the sacrificial death of Jesus is the only way the scroll will be opened. The only way injustice will be dealt with. The only way unfairness will be, vengeance will be taken on it. The only way All the darkness and all the chaos and the world will be healed and evil will be overthrown. There is no other way. That was what he was weeping. He was weeping and weeping. There's no way, no way. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody would have guessed that God would take on flesh and become a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And somehow in in some, you know, otherworldly calculus, that actually is going to deal with all of this brokenness. That God is going to obliterate death. But he does it through the sacrificial death of the lamb. Now notice what happens. Once John sees that, singing breaks out. Up until this moment, there's been no song in heaven. Look at chapter 4. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. Each day and night, they never cease singing. Is anybody following along? Does your Bible say? Saying. That's right. They're talking. They're talking God's praises. But once the Lamb shows up, (laughs) even tone deaf, can't sing people, angels break in, it says in verse 8, 9, and they sang a new song. And suddenly we have three songs in a row. First is verses, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. They first begin to praise the Lamb for rescuing a people by His death. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language. Notice, He did a thing. The Lamb rescued a people by His death. And then second, the second song. See, there's a progression. Verse 12. Suddenly, thousands upon thousands join these 24 and these four. Myriad of myriad. You know what a myriad is? It's 10,000. Any math majors? 10,000 times 10,000. Anybody? 100 million. Suddenly, 100 million angels show up. And now they're not singing about what Jesus did. They're now singing about what he deserves because of what he did. It says, and they said, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He now deserves to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it's like a pebble dropped 
into, or like a giant mountain dropped into an ocean. The waves go out through the whole universe. It starts from the 4 and 24, then it goes to 100 million, and then in verse 13, we have the third song, every creature in every part of God's creation joins in, and the praises of the Lamb are joined with the praises of the Creator, and this thunderous worship, the whole creation praises the one who sits on the throne. All of creation does what it was made to do all along. Now, that's a preview of the book. How in the world is the death of Jesus going to result in all of creation put right? When we're about to go through the death of the saints, how do those things add up? I wish I had time to tell you this morning. Uh, But we've got this whole series where I'm going to get to show you how that actually happens. How is it that in the persecution they're about to go through, creation is going to get healed? I don't have time to show you that this morning, but it's here. We've got the rest of the series to do it. But I do want to wrap up with showing you one really amazing thing that does happen here. Notice. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. They didn't need a harp before because they were just talking. They weren't singing. But now we go from weeping to singing through the sacrificial death of the lamb. And what else are they holding? Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let let me close in this. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see... How the suffering of Christians heals the world. We're going to see that when Jesus was lifted up on a cross, it was the way God was making all things new. The Christians are about to be lifted up on crosses. And we're going to see the exaltation of Jesus and the exaltation of the martyrs. That's what we're going to see in the next few weeks. It happened then and it's happening today. And it's going to happen again. But along the way, let's notice one thing. Heaven is real. There is more to reality than what you can see in a microscope and what you can feel in goosebumps and what you can look at and touch. There is heaven. Heaven is God's dimension. But it is umbilically connected to earth. Through the prayers of the saints. Do you see? The prayers are in heaven. We're about to stand up. And you know what we're about to do as a church? We're about to pray. And those prayers. Are going to be gathered up. And they're going to come before the throne of the God. Who is in charge. That's why we pray. They go across. They pierce the veil. We're going to stand up and pray in just a moment because there is a God. And because He is on the throne. And His Son died to make us priests. So that the prayers of priests can become the incense of heaven. We pray because God acts differently if we don't pray. Not because it's a game. So let's stand. And let's act like we believe in this vision of reality.